Oh, good morning. Uh, for those of you who I haven't had a chance to meet, I'm Sheridan. Uh, the first thing that I should say to you, first of all, is I've written a book and I've written about you in it. Some of you know that I've last 12 months I've been writing a book while I've been here in the UK. What you don't know is that you are written about in it. Be afraid. Be very, very afraid. The Daily Mail has nothing compared to what I have on you. No, I think you'll be very happy with uh, what, what you see. Um, Merritt and I have been part of the church probably for about, I guess, 14, 15 months or so now. And we feel like uh, in OCC we found a group of people who seek after God with passion. Uh, and that will be what is actually reflected. Um, am I sounding like I'm in a fishbowl at the moment? Anyway, I'll just keep on going. We'll see how we go. Uh, I was given a very small passage of scripture to preach on this morning. And it was on the experience of Thomas doubting Jesus. And this week, as I was reading through that passage and reflecting and praying on that passage and everything else, I just felt that we had to go a little bit broader than that. We had to open up the lens a bit and see everything else that was going on around about that time. And I've got to say, it's been something of a a personal revelation for me this week. So, Father, as we come and as we hear your word and as we enter these stories, I ask, Lord, that by your spirit, you would both speak to us and open your eyes, our eyes, to see who you are. Take us deeper and deeper into you, Lord. That's all that matters. In Jesus' name. There are two great questions that the skeptics raise about belief in God. One of those questions goes like this. Why does your God remain hidden? How does it go? If your God would just appear before me, then I'd believe. The other question is, uh, in a world of suffering, where is your God? If your God is so good, why is there suffering? If he wants to heal the suffering, stop the suffering, and he doesn't, maybe he doesn't have the power, so he's not all powerful, or maybe he's powerful enough to stop the suffering, but he doesn't do it, maybe he's not all good. And those two questions, I would suggest, are not actually the domain of the skeptics only. They can also be the domain of the believer who's going through a season of doubt. Yeah? Great saints of the faith throughout the centuries have wrestled with those two questions. Great believers of the faith, you name it, you name the probably the great person, you'll say, you'll be able to find in their histories that they have wrestled at one stage or another with those two questions. Is God there? Is God good? And you think about that first question. Have you not asked yourself at some stage, why does God seem to remain hidden? Wouldn't it be wonderful if God just showed up in my lounge room and made it all so clear? Wouldn't it be great? It would be a great experience to have God show up in that kind of way. But he doesn't. He doesn't seem to oblige with those kinds of requests. In fact, when he does show show up in a visual form, he seems to love to come in disguise. So with Egypt, the Egyptian experience for Israel, with Israel being led out of Egypt, how did God appear to them? He appeared as a cloud by day and as a fire by night. Elijah, at one stage, experienced God as fire falling from heaven. 
and the next moment experiences God as the gentlest of whispers. Moses saw a burning bush. Isaiah sees a king on a throne. Whichever way you look at it, you've got to say that none of these is actually God himself. God is not a flame. God is not a cloud. God is not a whisper. God is not a burning bush. So why doesn't God just step out from behind the cloud, behind the fire, behind the whisper, step out from behind the burning bush and show us who he really is, just like he did in Bruce Almighty when we discovered he is actually Morgan Freeman? (laughs) Now, the theologians, we've got some theologians here this morning, I believe, wonderful Ask any of them. Put up your hands, those of you who are here for the uh, King's School thing. Nobody, they're all outside. Okay, well, we'll find them and ask them. Ask them this question. Why does God remain hidden? And we'll see how well they come up with the answers. But most of the theologians will come up with all sorts of answers as to why God remains hidden. They'll remind us that God is an infinite God. He has no boundaries, if the earth and the heavens cannot contain the great God of the universe, then he's probably not going to be able to squeeze into your lounge room. They'll remind us that between God and humanity is an absolute boundary of being. Don't you love that? I love those technical phrases, an absolute boundary of being. Drop that into your next dinner party and just say one night, maybe just somewhere round about the middle saying, friends, it's been a wonderful evening, but I do note with some regret that none of you has actually raised the issue of God's absolute boundary of being. (laughs) More wine? (laughs) They'll come up with all sorts of answers like this because we'll be reminded that God is so huge. He's so big. He's so giant that to some degree he will forever remain a holy enigma to us. Is heaven not going to be us every day learning something new about God and never exhausting him. We will never fully grasp God. So to some degree, he will always remain a holy enigma to us. I had a a, a skeptic on Twitter. Anybody on Twitter? Three of you, great. Well, let's follow each other and then our follower numbers can go up and we can look good because that's really what Twitter is all about, how many followers you have. But I got uh, rousted up by a, a, a skeptic on Twitter. On Twitter, you've got a little section in the, in the website that uh, is a description of who you are. And I think I had the, the thing down as, I'm a writer, speaker, broadcaster on contemporary spirituality. I've changed it now, but the phrase I found really helpful for engaging with people from a variety of different spiritual backgrounds. And this guy tweeted back and he said, contemporary spirituality... The guy you followed died 2,000 years ago. What's contemporary about your spirituality? And the great Christian response, the great cry of Easter Sunday, is that he's not dead. He's alive, is he not? The great cry of Easter Sunday is that we say he's alive and he's encountering you now and thus now he's encountering people everywhere. True? The great cry of Easter Sunday is we can say that he is changing lives this minute, the next minute, the next minute. Right? And so the skeptic returns to us and he asks us a question. He says, okay, well, I repeat my request. May this God of yours appear 
before me in bodily form. Question. When God rose, when Jesus rose from the dead, when Jesus rose from the dead, did he rise as a body or as a spirit? Oh, goodness, we need to do some education here, Steve. <laughs> body or a spirit? Body. A body, correct. Question. When Jesus rose from the dead, did he appear bodily before anybody else? Yes, yes he did, correct. Third question. How many of you have had Jesus appear before you in bodily form? Can I see a show of hands? And so the skeptic goes, I rest my case. And the person who's doubting, the person who's doubting, says, maybe it's not true. Maybe it's not true. You see, this holy enigma, this holy enigma, when he comes to us, he comes, and he doesn't really make it any clearer, does he? Because when Jesus, God in human form, which the theologians will also remind us is the one moment when God actually said to us, well, I'll respond to your request, I'll appear to you in bodily form. The one moment when God does that, he comes as a holy enigma in bodily form. He doesn't make things all that much clearer. In fact, what does he do? Does he, when he comes, does he actually say... Here I am, second person of the Trinity, I have arrived, almighty God, human bodily form, I'm here all week. (laughs) No, he doesn't. He never says that. What he does say is, I'm the vine, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world. He wraps himself in similes and symbols that have to be interpreted. Does he come preaching three-point sermons and make his message really, really clear with a little joke in the middle and a nice emotive story at the end to make sure that everybody gets his point? No. He comes telling parables. He comes telling stories. He tells stories about a farmer who goes and sows seed. He tells stories about a farmer who a father who throws a party for his son. He tells stories of a Samaritan who does a good deed. And does he make the point of these stories clear? No. In fact, most of the time, he walks away saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so when the holy enigma comes to us in bodily form, he comes as a holy riddler. He comes as somebody who doesn't make things all clear. He comes as somebody who tells us a puzzle and says, solve the puzzle. So we've got this God who's a holy enigma. When he comes to us in bodily form, he's a holy riddler. But he's come to us in bodily form. And then when he rises again from the grave, he appears to people in bodily form. But why hasn't he appeared to us in bodily form now? The skeptic says, because it was all a myth. And the doubting believer says, well, maybe the skeptic is true, but wait. But wait just one moment. Because those scripture passages that we were uh, hearing this morning are the stories of four people that Jesus particularly wanted to meet after his resurrection. And when we meet those people and we see what they saw, it is fascinating. Hence why I've opened up the lens this morning. Think about Mary Magdalene. Think, Think about Mary standing before that cold, dark cave. Think about Mary Magdalene. She's sick with grief. 
tears are clouding her eyes. The innocent man that she loved, the innocent man that she so loved, she watched, arrested, whipped, stripped, ridiculed, spat on, mocked with a phony crown of thorns, pinned alive to two pieces of wood, stabbed in the side to make sure he was dead after he suffered an agonising couple of hours on that Roman cross. And to make all of that worse, she's arrived at this grave, it's empty, and it looks like somebody has gone and stolen the body. Think about Mary Magdalene in that kind of situation. Think about yourself if you were her, standing there, looking into this emptiness. She peers down and she looks into the cave. And suddenly she's startled by something. She's startled by two angels. And then she hears a voice. And the voice behind her says, why are you crying? She turns around and who does she see? She sees the gardener. Cleopas and his friend are walking along the road to Emmaus. And Cleopas is filled with disappointment. He's filled with disappointment and he's filled with broken dreams because the very one that he had so much hope in, the very one who he thought was the Christ, the very one he thought was going to fulfill the great national dream of the Jews being released from their enemies has been crucified. And that's not the way the story ends, if you know the story of the Messiah. That's not the way it's supposed to happen, that he gets crucified, at least as far as he understands it. And he and his friend are walking along the road to Emmaus, and they're trying to work all this out. And make, to make it worse, to make it even more confusing, this morning they've heard about Mary Magdalene's experience of seeing angels. Where does all that fit into all of this? And they're walking along, trying to work it out, make sense of it all, and suddenly this third person starts to walk alongside with them. What are you talking about? They look at this third person and they can't recognise him. He looks like just a stranger. They've never met him before. Must just be another traveller on their way to Emmaus. Think about Peter. Think about Peter and the disciples and they're out on the Sea of Galilee and they've been fishing all night. Think about Peter bewildered by everything that's happened over the last week since Jesus was crucified. He's feeling bewildered, he's feeling confused, what on earth is going on? And to be honest, he's also feeling ashamed. Because he who said he would follow Jesus to the very end is the very one who said three times, I do not know the man. And he's feeling that. And now, of course, he's feeling frustrated because they've been out all night. They've been fishing at night, as the fishermen do, because that's when they can see the fish reflected in the sunlight, in the, in the moonlight, and they haven't caught one thing. And then there appears on the shore this vague figure. And this figure on the shore calls out to them, why don't you throw your nets on the other side of the boat? You'll probably have more luck there. And Peter looks over at this vague figure on the shore and he realises, I don't know that person and who would they be telling me, a fisherman, how to fish? Thomas. Thomas is sitting with his disciples. He's sitting with his disciples probably in the very room that they all celebrated Passover with Jesus just a week and a half before. 
He's sitting with the disciples in that room, and he is confused. In fact, he's more than confused, he's doubting. He's probably even sceptical, because all of his friends, first Mary Magdalene, then Cleopas, and then, a week ago, all his other friends, his disciples, all have claimed a spiritual experience that he has not had. They've all said that Jesus has appeared to them. And it's not that he isn't... He doesn't think that they're lying to him. He thinks that they're mistaken. Because dead men don't rise from the grave to appear to people. So maybe Jesus has come as an apparition to them. Maybe he's come to them as a vision or something like that. And all of this is going through his mind when suddenly he hears some movement in the background and suddenly before him appears a vision, a person who says, peace be with you. And he looks and with horror he thinks he's seen a ghost. So just think about that, friends. Mary, Cleopas, Peter, Thomas, in each case, we are told that when they encounter the risen Jesus, they do not recognize him. They do not recognize the very one who has come in bodily form. They do not recognize the holy enigma who has come as the holy riddler, who has come in bodily form. And when he is resurrected, the first thing they do is they say, I don't know that person. I don't recognize that face. Do you not find that fascinating? Do you not find that to be one of the most fascinating things possible? Because when he comes back, he comes back incognito. When Jesus appears, he comes back incognito. And we ask that question again. Why? Why does God so love to come in disguise? Why does God so love to kind of blur everything, put up a smoke screen, and we don't recognize who it is? Why? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Those who seek, find. He who seeks me with all of his heart seeks me and will find me. That's the reason, friends. That's the reason that God remains hidden. That's the reason why God comes to us incognito. God comes to us incognito. He hides, so we will seek. God hides, so we will seek. He says, will you follow the cloud? Will you follow the fire? Will you... Listen to the whisper. Will you step closer to the burning bush? When Jesus comes and he says, I'm the vine, he's saying, here is a description of me. If you want to spend a bit of time, you might be able to reflect on it and find out that I am the one who gives you life. I'm the one who makes you flourish. When he says, he who hears, let him hear, he's saying, will you come in and and engage in this story? Will you listen to this story? Will you indwell this story? And then hear the little bits and pieces that all connect and realize that that story is about me. So when the holy enigma comes in human form and becomes the holy riddler, he comes as one who comes incognito, but he comes as one who says, will you seek me? Will you go beyond that? beyond what you first see and see if it's really me? He's like, a, he's like somebody who comes and scatters a trail of breadcrumbs and says, will you come and find the hand who scattered them? He's like somebody who comes and comes to us and says, here's a riddle, will you solve it? And I think he has spread little clues right throughout the whole of the universe for us. 
He spread little clues everywhere. He spread them in art and history. He spread them in nature and in science. He spread them in human experience of love and goodness and those things where we go, there's got to be something more than that when we're sitting watching an amazing sunset, whatever. There's little clues and there's clues in scriptures and there's clues in the Old Testament. There's clues through the prophets and through the law. There's clues in Jesus. And he's saying, will you come, connect up, gather up all the clues, put them all together and see if you can solve the mystery. Are you with me? So when God comes to us, he comes incognito. So let's go back to that original question. Because the funny thing is, that question, if God would just appear before me, Why is God hidden? Turns out to be a divine little ploy. God hides, so we will seek. He says, will you follow the breadcrumbs, follow the trail? Will you follow? Will you listen to the puzzle, listen to the riddle? Will you try and solve it? Will you take up all the clues? Will you follow? Do you really, really want to know me? You've probably realised by now that I'm not from around here. Uh, based on my accent, it's very clear, obviously, that I'm, I'm from Middlesex. Uh, actually, mum's from Middlesex. Dad is from the Isle of Wight. I was born in Australia, but I do have a British passport. I am one of you. <laughs> and as a child, because I had English parents, I actually always sounded like a pommy. I got teased in the schoolyard for being a pommy. I thought, Mom, I'm Australian, I'm Australian. Actually, I was probably, I'm Australian, I'm Australian. Uh, <laughs> and when I go other places around the world, people think that I'm English. I was at, uh, short story, I was at Nashville uh, just late last year, and I went to buy something at the local Walmart, and I went to Walmart to buy something, and I went through the checkout, and this lovely African-American girl served me. You know, we're at Nashville, deep south of the U.S., and I'm there, and I'm going through, and we get chatting, and she hears the accent, and she says where you from? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm actually Australian, but I'm now living in England. And uh, just at that moment, as I'm telling her that, I'm looking through my wallet and realising I cannot find any American banknotes, any currency. And I say to her, I say, I am most concerned that I can't find my money. <laughs> and she looks at me and she says, oh, honey, you are so cute. What what did I do? What did I say? She said, around here we get concerned, but we don't get most concerned. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, jolly good show, chats. Obviously, I'm I'm certainly one of you. Um, Some of you will know, and the story is too long to go into now. Some of you know that Marin and I came to the UK from Australia uh, for a reason. We came here to some degree to start again. Uh, We had experienced a broken dream and we needed a new beginning. And we sought that dream for 10 years. And we prayed our souls dry. And other people prayed their souls dry on our behalf. And... There were healing meetings and there were prayer meetings specially called for us. There were diets. We did everything ethically required to make sure that we could, in some way, put ourselves in a place where we could see this dream become a reality. It never happened. And at the end of that 10 years, we called it a day. It's now a finished deal for us, so you know you don't need to pray for it anymore. But it's one of those situations where we just needed to 
to start again. I would tell you, there wasn't a time during that 10 years that we doubted God's existence, but we did question his goodness. Anybody experienced something similar? Will you raise those questions? Is he good? Remember those two questions. Why is he hidden? In a world of suffering, is he good? Is he there? What is he doing? Well, the world is full of light, isn't it? It's full of goodness and joy and beauty and amazing experiences. It's also full, as much as it's full of light, it's full of shadows, full of darkness. I've got friends who have just been through their third miscarriage. In two of those miscarriages, they have at the end held within their hands the perfectly formed, lifeless body of their child. Just a week ago, I had, in the space of a week, two people contact me via email saying that they wanted to harm themselves. The place of this world is full of darkness. It's full of shadows, if you like. And so again, the skeptic says, where is your God in the midst of all this suffering? And we as believers, when we go through a dark time, we ask the same question. Where are you, God, in the midst of the shadows and the darkness in this world? Pause for a minute, friends. Just pause for a minute again and have a look at those four characters that Jesus approaches. That moment after he is resurrected. Look again at Mary Magdalene. Look at her face. Look at her tears. Look at her sickness with grief. Look at the dark lines underneath her eyes because she hasn't slept. Look at her scruffy hair. Look at all the tears on her cheeks. Look at Cleopas as he's walking along the Emmaus Road and his, all his hopes are in tatters and his dreams are broken. Look at Peter out on the water fishing with his disciple friends and look at his guilt-ridden heart. And look at Thomas. Look at Thomas sitting there waiting, wondering what this is that he's seeing here and think about the doubt and the scepticism in his mind and his soul. Don't you notice that in every case, Jesus approaches people in the shadows. He specifically calls people and meets people in the shadows. And so a second great question about the doubt and our questions about the, the existence of God, the whole sadness and suffering in the world, actually turns out to be a fascinating concept at the very least in the midst of the darkness in the midst of the shadows is where God comes to us and what does he do he reveals us as somebody with scars on his hands and so when Mary Magdalene hasn't yet realized who it is who's standing before her very soon Mary you'll realize that the person who stands before you is one acquainted with grief that's what Isaiah says Acquainted with grief. Here is one who was chased from town to town by politicians and by priests. His family thought he was mad. His friends abandoned him in his hour of need. Cleopas, Cleopas, as you're walking along the Emmaus Road, have you not thought about the fact that the one who's standing before you and walking beside you is the one who also had broken dreams too? Who's the one who, in the Garden of Gethsemane, is so concerned about his future because he knows, at least for the immediate part, where it's going to lead? And he's sweating drops of blood. Peter, Peter, here is one standing before you 
who has been tempted in every way that we have and yet is without sin. He's the one who can empathize with every single weakness. And Thomas, Thomas, recognize that before you stands one who was pushed to the very edge of doubt. What happened in that first time when he was out in the wilderness? If you are the son of God, throw yourself off of the temple. If you are the son of God, turn the bread, turn the stones into bread. If you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, are you? So we find one who comes to us incognito, but he also comes to us in the shadows. He comes to us in the shadows of life and he reveals himself as one who knows and is acquainted with grief. He is one who meets us in the shadows. In fact, I would suggest he is one who meets us most most powerfully in the shadows. Maybe it's the revelation of God that we will have in the midst of the shadows that will be the greatest revelation of God we will ever see because what other religion has a God with scars in his hands? Now for something a little lighter. Who likes board games? (laughs) Favourite board game? Monopoly. Okay, anybody like Scrabble? It's all the dull people. I like, I like Scrabble, I like Scrabble, I like Scrabble. Uh, I've heard, in fact I know from good experience, that Steve and Bev Jones play a very mean game of Settlers of Catan. Yeah. Any other favourites? Risk. Ticket to Ride. Ticket to Ride? Don't know it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, don't know that one. Mary and I like this game called Mr. and Mrs. You play it as couples, and it's all about how well you know each other as to whether you will uh, win the points or not. It's a really fun game, apart from the fact that one of the couples we played with recently nearly had a divorce over it. But anyway. <laughs> Anybody played um, Articulate? Yeah. Isn't Articulate great? Yeah. And here you've got this... The whole concept is that you have to... For those of you who haven't played it, who are busy playing Settlers of Catan... Now, those of you who haven't, played, who haven't played it, the whole idea is that you pick up a card and you find that you're given a thing, a place, or an action that you've got to describe without describing what it is. You're not allowed to use the first letter of the word. Uh, you're not allowed to use rhymes, it sounds like. Uh, and then there's the all-play games. Aren't the all-play games fun? When everybody basically has a chance to then put their hand up and like they're, they're sh- shouted out. And you've got to play really fast during the all-play games because that's when the clues that you're giving to your teammates, everybody is able to answer, and so they can win the point from you. So the best way to play articulate is to play with somebody you know really well and exploit your shared knowledge. Exploit the things that only you two know. And so I pick up a card, and it's a place, and I say to Merrin, we visited here in 2006, and she goes, India, and we get the point. <laughs> now, nobody else would be able to answer that because we know. Now, my family and friends knew and happened to remember that we went to India. They would, you know, but generally, it's something just me and Merrin know. And so Merrin picks up a card, and she says, when you do this in the kitchen, I always laugh. And I say, dance in my underwear. <laughs> and she says, no. <laughs> I say, lick the plates clean. She says, no. (laughs) Put my toenails. No. Sing silly songs that I've made up. Yes. And we get the point. So it's information that just her and I know. The way to play the game is to play with somebody you know. And when you play with somebody you know, only a word, only a phrase, only an action is all that's needed for recognition. Think about our four people. 
woman, why do you cry? And she spins around, how Mary Magdalene, she spins around and she sees this gardener. And she says, if you're the one who's taken the body away, well then just at least tell me where you've put the body and I'll go and look after him. And all that person has to say is one word, Mary. And she says, there's only one person who can say my name in that kind of way. And her eyes are miraculously open to see it's Jesus. Cleopas and his friends walking on the Emmaus Road, they find something strange happening as this person who's come alongside them and met them and and asked them questions and started to explain from the scriptures why the Christ had to suffer before he rose again. They find that their heart is beating fast. They get to the village and they encourage this stranger, this third person, to come and stay with them. And the person comes and stays with them. They sit down to eat some dinner. And this person picks up a loaf of bread and he gives thanks for the bread and he breaks the bread and he starts giving the bread out. And they go, bread, thanks, broken, Passover, Jesus. Peter and his disciples are out on the sea and they decide to take the advice of this strange figure on the shore and throw their net on the other side of the boat. And what happens within a moment, the hall is so large, they can hardly pull it in. And at that moment, they say, hang on a sec, deja vu. Three years ago, when he caught... We were... And it's Jesus. Thomas, staring at this figure that looks like a ghost in front of him, watches that figure approach him in the room. And the figure approaches him and comes to him and looks him in the eye. And he repeats the exact words that Thomas said a week ago. Thomas, look at the scars on my hands. Take your fingers, feel the wound. Take your hand, put it into the side where I was stabbed after I was killed. Stop believing, stop doubting and believe. The very words that Thomas used when he expressed his doubt to his friends a week ago. So the holy enigma comes to us as the holy riddler. And when he's died and rises again, he then comes back to us incognito. And once he comes to us incognito, he meets us in the shadows. And when he meets us in the shadows, after a little while, he opens our eyes to see. But what does he see? What do we see when he opens our eyes to see? He doesn't Show us his physicality. Nobody saw him, recognized him by his physicality. We recognize him by his personality. The word, the little shared experience that Jesus shares, the little thing that can only be him, the little thing that he knows about us that only he could know. We get to know him by the personality we have come to know when we have sought him following the trail of breadcrumbs, trying to understand the answer to the riddle, trying to collect up all the clues to solve the mystery. This is the way that Jesus reveals himself and the way we recognize him. So think back to that question of the skeptic. If God would just reveal himself in physical form in front of me, then I could believe. That's not the question at all. The question to ask back is, if he did so, would you recognize him? Because the very people that knew him best, had been with him for three years, didn't until 
they recognized his personality. And so if you want to see God working in your life, it's not going to be because he suddenly appears to you in physical form. It's going to be because you go, huh, that sounds like God. That looks like God. That's the kind of thing Jesus would do. That's the kind of thing that's in line with the very personality of the God I've come to know through the difficulties, through the grief, through the shame, through the doubt, through it all. You with me? So this is a big change and a big turnaround from the way that we normally think about God. This is a God who only reveals himself to those who know him. So if you want to prove God, you get to know him. And you get to know him through the dark times. I posted on Facebook yesterday that I was going to talk about this today, about how God hides so we seek. And somebody posted back, that's all very well, but I for one wish I could just yell out, I give up God, you can come out now. (coughs) Yes, he comes incognito. Yes, he meets us in the shadows. And yes, he opens our eyes to see. But often we wait Often we wait. Often he keeps us waiting. 400 years the Israelites were in slavery until God appeared to take them out of slavery. 400 years. Anybody waited that long for their promise to come true? 27 years for Abraham as he waited for the promised child to be born to him, the heir. My mother sought God for 10 years to find out who Jesus was. She was a member of a religious cult at the time. She was a missionary with them. She was serious. And this religious cult said that Jesus is an angel, no more. But she started to doubt. Doubt can be a very good thing. But she was not allowed to go searching for answers anywhere apart from this organization. In fact, you weren't even allowed to doubt. To doubt was to be labeled spiritually sick. And so you weren't allowed to doubt. You weren't allowed to go and speak to any Christians because they were of the devil. And so what did my mother do? She could do nothing else. For 10 years, most mornings, she got up, and after we, she got us off to school and all of that, she would go back to bed. She would open up her New World Translation. She would open up her Catholic Douay version of the Bible, which she wasn't supposed to have. She'd open up a Good News Bible, which she had been given, which she wasn't supposed to have accepted. And she'd open up a Greek and Hebrew interlinear Bible. That's basically the original languages of the, of the Bible and then like a, an English, literal English translation underneath. Ten years, she asked every morning, Jehovah, show me who Jesus is. There came a moment when she read John eight fifty eight, where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I, in her translation of the Bible, the one that she was given by her religion, the translation is, I have been. And she read in the Greek and Hebrew interlinear version that morning, the one, funnily enough, that was produced by the organization and no longer is given out by the organization. She read the words, I am. I am? I am? As in, I am that I am? As in Moses appearing before God and saying, who is your name? What is your name? Who should I say sent me? And God says, I am that I am? And her eyes were opened to see who Jesus really was. And as a result of that, a few months later, my dad came through to find out who Jesus really was. And because of the change in them, I discovered who Jesus really was. Ten years of searching. For Thomas, it was only a week between when his doubts were raised and when his appearance 
from Jesus came. Only a week. I bet it was the longest week of his life. But I just want to say, friends, that it's all fine for me to get up and say, you know, God appears to us, you know, he's all the great sort of... There may be a time of waiting. And so the question is, will we seek? In the midst of that waiting, in the midst of the grief, in the midst of the time where you feel like God isn't showing up, in the midst of 10 years as Marin and I felt God's silence to us about this one thing, this dream, will we keep seeking him? Will we keep seeking him? Will you keep seeking him if you are grieving? Well, in the midst of your grief, will you seek to find the one who also grieved and get to know him so much better and deeper than you ever could have before? In the midst of your broken dreams, just like Cleopas, will you keep on seeking? Will you keep walking and discussing these things? And will you then start to recognize another voice asking you questions and suggesting scriptures to you, making your heart beat? In the midst of your shame, recognizing how you failed him, will you seek him? You've got the easiest bit of all, actually, because Jesus never waits to let go of shame, never, never, takes, never delays on that one. He loves to forgive. But in the midst of that, will you reflect on those scars, the scars that are the price for your forgiveness? Find out how deep they are, how much they hurt. In the midst of your doubt, I've been, I went, I've been through two, one, one big, big season of doubt, lasted a few months. In the midst of your doubt, will you keep seeking? In the midst of your doubt, will you keep reading, searching the scriptures? Will you stay amongst the people of faith? Notice where Thomas is when Jesus appears to him. He's actually still there in the upper room with the disciples. He's still there. Stick around. And, and by the way, just as an aside, I hope OCC is a doubt-friendly church. I hope that we become a safe place where people can ask those questions. Doubt is not unbelief. Here's belief. Here's unbelief. Here's a settled little box. Here's a place. Here's a settled little box. Here's a place. And doubt is right here. Doubt can lead here or doubt can lead here. And where else are we going to find a place where people can come and ask their deepest doubts and have them explored if it's not going to be a safe place like OCC? But in the midst of your doubt, will you seek him? And if you're here and you're a skeptic, gosh, I'm glad you're here. If you are a skeptic, here's the invitation. Will you come? Will you come and follow the bread trail, the breadcrumbs? See if there's a hand that has scattered them. Will you come? Listen to the puzzle. Try and solve the riddle. Will you come? At least check it out. You may well end up where Thomas ended up. What did he say at the end? My Lord, my God. So, Lord, in Jesus' name we ask that you would take these things and imprint them deep on our souls and you would work them deep within our very being. And I ask, Lord, that you would so speak to us in this next moment as we break bread together, just as the people on the Emmaus Road had their eyes open to you. Lord, would you reveal yourself to us? But, Lord... May it be that we know you better. Nothing else matters. Amen. Amen.